Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. My name is Gus Stocker. On this episode, I talk with Anders Sandberg from the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford University. We start out by talking about ChatGPT, which is the newest language model from OpenAI. But we also talk about, in general, what we can learn from how AI has developed, about the future risks and benefits of AI. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I think you will too. Here's Anders Sandberg. Anders, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. I assume you've been playing around with uh, Chat GPT, um, the new language model from OpenAI. Have you tried it? Of course I have. It's a very fun, very shiny toy right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. What what have surprised you about its capabilities? I was probably most blown away when uh, I read that you could actually use it as a fake Linux terminal to make it pretend that it's actually a computer. And you can move around in different directories, install software, surf the web, except, of course, it's not the real web. It's a kind of a dream web that it's imagining. And I saw people tweeting about it, so I tried it myself. And I got curious, what are the files I'm finding on this computer? So I found this uh, folder containing uh, letters. So I found the CV of the owner of the account. So I read John Doe's uh, CV where he's talking about uh, his skills as a programmer at XYZ Corporation. It was a weird feeling because in some sense, GPT is making up a very plausible file to find on a generic computer from indeed a very generic person. At the same time, I felt like maybe I shouldn't go and look at the private files because they're probably private. (laughs) Where is this information coming from? Maybe we could explain how GPT line models work. So generally, the large language models are glorified versions of the text completion we have in our smartphones. You basically try to predict what is the next word or even the next letter coming from a previous sequence of characters. And it's fairly obvious that you can do this in a simple statistical method, that you just take a lot of text, calculate the probability of the next word based on the previous ones, except that that doesn't do much for grammar. Uh, And indeed, these kind of random Markov chain models have been fun sources of nonsense poetry since the 1970s in computer circles. What the language models do is they add a more complex artificial neural network that actually is aware in some sense of previous words that have been in a sentence. If I start talking about animals in a sentence, then various words that might be ambiguous might be more or less likely, given that the context is animals. If I switch to the context to start talking programming, then suddenly other words become more likely. This is all there is to it. It's basically predicting a sequence of tokens based on a large corpus of text that you train it on. And now it just predicts the next token. And then you can, of course, add more to that. And it generates a fairly likely text. This is in itself really amazing because some of these texts actually do seem to contain real meaning. And then when you do it interactively, like in ChatGPT, you're writing something and you're getting a plausible response. And it's very hard to shake that feeling that there is intelligence here. I give an instruction. Uh, and the text uh, responds with following that instruction, even though what's actually going on is not so much that there is a being 
that understands that Anders want me to do these things, but rather it's a text that is being updated by two actors. And the game is very much like if there is an instruction earlier in this sequence, then that should be applied later on. So there is no real understanding in one sense. In another sense, it's very clear that I can ask these systems uh, which colors are more similar to each other, and I get reasonable responses. This is weird because, of course, uh, these systems have never seen anything. They have only ever experienced a lot of text. But that text comes from humans that generate, of course, a lot of color and, and, and appreciation, a lot of color names, a lot of color comparisons. And given that it's more sensible to say that green is closer to you know, maybe turquoise than red is, then the text system will do this too. The problem is this kind of reflected intelligence it confuses us very, very easily. Yeah, I think it's important to remind ourselves how these models actually work. Sometimes it's it's confusing to say. I I, I had a chat with a GPT uh, the, in the weekend, and I had a discussion on moral philosophy with this model, and it felt real to me. It felt as if the model understood what I was saying. And then I, I, I asked it to correct the point that it had made because it was wrong, and it acknowledged that it had made a wrong point but then it repeated the point over and over again, which breaks the illusion. So it, it's also amazing to think that how broad the knowledge in these models is. So I know something about moral philosophy, but you could also ask it about, ask it about uh, engineering, bridges, or art, or poetry, whatever it is. So in one sense, as you say, these, this line of models uh, show understanding, but in another sense, it's, it's brittle understanding. Uh, it's also not sensitive to inconsistencies, uh, which I think is very interesting. Uh, I, I saw somebody that uh, had had a wonderful argument with uh, ChatGPT about whether it could speak Danish. And the model was responding in Danish, saying, no, I don't understand Danish. I'm trained, trained on an English corpus. <laughs> yeah. It was obviously wrong, obviously inconsistent, and it didn't care because that was the most likely way that weird conversation could continue. It's interesting to think about these uh, abilities that to us seem uh, like a qualitative leap, but they arise out of basically the same type of model that just has more data or has more parameters or has longer training times, more expensive training runs. But to us, it seems as if the models are learning uh, new things. Yeah, for, for example, that that's we can now hold longer conversations. Yeah, what do you think this trend will continue and we will continually be surprised? I think it's a very good bet that we will be surprised because our ability to predict the capabilities of AI systems has been demonstrated again and again to be really bad. It goes both ways. People have both been too bullish about how easy it would be to actually program many tasks and discovered the hard way that computer vision is a really deep problem, that solving some problems that are easy for young kids uh, is actually very hard for robots to do. While it's not terribly hard to write software that does symbolic math that is very much more powerful than any human could ever be. So that's more of a paradox, that the five-year-old is kind of outperforming the best robot, uh, while the rather simpler programs are outperforming the professor. 
But at the same time, we've also been wrong about things not being doable. So in the current era of large language models, there is a lot of people who know a lot about language and AI that have been making very confident predictions about their failures and shortcomings and that this cannot be dealt with. And usually the story is a few months later, a new version shows up and it totally blows uh, those problems out of the water. And then typically the human expert gives another interview where he proclaims some other problems being really a good test to show that this is not true intelligence and that it cannot possibly be solved. And my bet would be that six months later, a new version arrives and does even that, even though the underlying basic point that, yes, the language models don't really have understanding in our sense is valid. It's worth recognizing that, yes, they're not intelligent in the sense we use about having a goal, having plans to implement this goal. The language models are just predicting strings of tokens, but they're doing it so well that even people in robotics have started to use them for internal communication and planning. Because you can, of course, use these strings of tokens and, uh, to also make up good plan. How do I make a cup of tea? Have the language model describe the steps, send that to another language model that controls the robotic arm. So then you combine the instructions from a, instructions from a language model with some computer vision, and then you have the beginnings of a robot that can actually navigate in the world. Yeah. So if we look back, if we think, uh, say, t- uh, 10 or 20 years ago, we perhaps would have thought that we would have uh, pretty, uh, pretty high-functioning self-driving cars by now, but that didn't turn out to be the case, at least not yet. But we didn't predict, or at least I haven't seen predictions of language models with this kind of capability uh, as we're seeing now. Can we use this information to predict how we will be uh, surprised in the future? Or is that too much to expect? I, I think we can use it as a kind of analogy. Uh, so generally, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So the autonomous cars were a beautiful example where you got a kind of transition. Back in 2006, when DARPA did its first uh, grand challenge, the cars were not doing very well. I think none of the cars actually managed to get to the goalpost even though they're driving in an open desert. And uh, most people were laughing and saying, yeah, that's uh, how bad it is. People who really paid attention said, oh, this is actually getting somewhere. Next year, they actually all went uh, and they reached the goalpost. And progress seemed to be very fast. And indeed, shortly, they were driving in in, uh, urban traffic. So that led us to believe that, oh, we're going to get autonomous cars very soon now. Then it turned out that there was another problem. Yes, of course, you can make a car that drives relatively well in a city or at least on a highway. Dealing with unexpected circumstances and making it safe enough that we can entrust it to drive our children, that is a very different thing. So right now, people are a bit more pessimistic about autonomous cars because they're good enough to demonstrate that they can be unsafe. And actually getting that extra level of safety, so we would say this is perfect uh, to use, is very, very hard. Meanwhile, the language models were kind of flying under the radar because uh, most of us didn't even think it was very important. I said they were glorified uh, cell phone text predictors. And in one sense, that's exactly what they uh, are, except that they're so good at predicting these sequences that you actually can use them to solve problems. Um, 
GPT-2 could, with some effort, uh, play chess, since there is enough chess games in chess notation. Uh, you still need to do a bit of extra work to just get legal moves. I bet you can do much better with ChatGPT. This is not because it's doing a proper chess evaluation, just that the database contains so much. And generally, the big surprise to somebody like me who learned about neural networks in the 1990s, before they really worked well, before they were cool, before you got a six-figure salary for knowing this, uh, is that the internal structure is not fundamentally dissimilar from what we were tooling around with. It's just that you have much bigger data sets and much bigger compute to actually do the training. So many of the things I solemnly told my students about back in the 90s, like, oh, yes, you need to avoid having too many degrees of freedom in the network because you will get overtraining and that's going to be very bad. Turns out to be not really true these days. Instead, you want to have a lot of parameters. You want to have billions of parameters because you're both training on a much bigger data set. But there are even these surprising properties where over-parameterized neural networks seem to be grokking. That is actually the term uh, people are using in the field now, uh, that they find the underlying pattern of a domain and then can do very good, accurate predictions. So Grok is from Heinlein's uh, science fiction novel, The Moon is a Harsh Mystery. So um, a boy reared by Martians has this weird Martian word for truly understand something, to actually be that thing. And it seems like in some situations, the underlying complexities of reality deep down have certain patterns that you can learn once you get enough data. This was not something we could predict that neural networks would be good at. And indeed, in the 90s, my advisor told me that, uh, yeah, deep neural networks, they're kind of a dead end. We didn't get much more results than original tests in the 80s. And that was totally true in the 1990s. And this stopped being true in 2010s because we had enough data, enough compute to run big networks. Now, this story about a mixed bag of predictions seems to suggest that over the next decade, we shouldn't be too surprised if it turns out that there's some new applications or architectures that become very powerful. And they might come from almost any practical application. Also, that old methods can be used for other things. So, for example, the convolutional deep neural networks that were used in computer vision, you can do one-dimensional versions of them to make sound synthesis and language synthesis. So we can totally expect that as a spin-off of the work in computer vision, we're going to get much better in the voices and probably artificial music. That's a likely prediction. But which jobs are going to get disrupted? Hmm. Uh, flip, a, uh, flip a die, flip a coin. You don't really know. Uh, when um, uh, Michael uh, Osborne and Carl Frey did uh, their famous study on the automatability of uh, jobs that was published in 2016, and they claimed that 47% of all jobs could be automated in the foreseeable future, they gave probability for different jobs. And it turns out that artists and illustrators, there was only 4% chance that it could be any automation. But of course, the 2022 saw this rise of AI art where DALI 2 and uh, Mid Journey and Stable Diffusion really scared the art community because it's pretty clear that at least some of the illustrator jobs are totally getting automated. Meanwhile, the insurance underwriters that uh, we gave a 99% probability of they could be automated are doing fine. Why? 
well, actually their job is much more about business relationships than actually taking numbers, filling them into spreadsheets and calculating a premium. So it turns out that our ability to reliably predict the consequences is rather low. And that leads to a strategy. It's kind of recognizing that, yeah, we are going to get surprised here. And that in itself might mean that we need to hedge our bets quite a lot. Do you think the failure rate of language models will hold them back from, 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 being, uh, from being used in the world to solve actual problems? Like we mentioned with the self-driving car, there the failure rate is too high for them to actually drive our kids around. You could imagine a language model lawyer, but if that lawyer as a language model, um, every 100th clause it produces is complete nonsense, then we can't really uh, trust it in a way that we perhaps can trust humans. So do, do, could, you, could there be similar problems where language models will confabulate or hallucinate, uh, on, say untrue things, and therefore they, they can't be used uh, as productively as we wish they could? I think it's very likely in many domains. So the automated lawyer, it's not a problem if uh, every hundred paragraph is uh, gibberish. Because real lawyers can also occasionally say gibberish and uh, it doesn't matter. If it says uh, if a lawyer says something that is untrue, on the other hand, uh-oh, now they are in real trouble. And the problem is, of course, language models are true bullshitters in uh, Frankfurt's uh, the, the, the philosophical sense. They don't care about being true or false. They just generate an output. So this makes them very unsuited, as they currently are, for that kind of job. I, I tried out ChatGPT on chemistry experiments. I asked it, what happens if I mix the following chemicals? And besides a short lecture that I shouldn't be doing that because it's unsafe, which was totally correct, it gave a somewhat correct answer for two chemicals. And then I changed it to another chemical. And again, I got a short lecture that that's an even more unsafe experiment, which was correct. And then it gave a totally erroneous answer. And it was really convinced uh, about uh, this uh, erroneous chemistry. That would not be very useful if I actually wanted to do proper chemistry. You need to tie the output to actual facts in the world much more strongly. But on the other hand, I tried it to come up with scenarios for role-playing games. Uh, I pointed out that, well, uh, classic Dungeons & Dragons is in a fantasy setting, but maybe we could do other historical settings. So at first I had it come up with good names for spells in a classical Greek setting. And then I asked it, could you come up with some other interesting historical settings? And it suggested that 1815 France, the post-Napoleonic era, and we're discussing the possibilities of having undead emperor, loyalist soldiers. This was creative work. It was not super creative. It was not coming up with something that was totally unthinkably weird. But at the same time, it was useful. I could tell it, let's add a complication. Let's add the Marshal of France, currently the the King of Sweden, to the storyline. And that worked out quite well. This is creative work. There is no right and wrong. It's only entertaining and less entertaining. And this is where I think it can be very powerful. If I were to use one of these models as my personal computer, as personal assistant, I ne- really need to know that it does what I tell it to do. It needs to actually demonstrate that it sent off that emails and doesn't just hallucinate that. Of course, I sent off the email, sir. You actually want to be able to check that it's reliable enough. But different domains have different kinds of reliability. 
Uh, I can totally see people using this to generate a large amount of text where we don't care too much about reliability. A lot of uh, copy, a lot of report, uh, bureaucratic reports, which are probably going to be read by another language model, distilling it down to a shorter form so the, the rest of the bureaucrat will uh, be certain that uh, I have done the right thing for the grant I got. Uh, and, uh, and it might be that now we're just using these models to uh, send an enormous amount of verbiage that no human ever reads. But maybe that, if that saves uh, our human nerves and eyes, uh, that might be a good idea. It is weird that these language models will output text that is completely false uh, with the same confidence or uh, as, as they will output true, uh, the, uh, true information. So as a user, if, you're, if we imagine a user using this as a kind of search engine to try to find true information, well, then you have to be a good judge of whether the AI is bullshitting or whether it is regurgitating true facts that it has learned online. And that I can see that holding the models back um, because we, we in, a, in a sense, uh, the models can't be trusted to tell the truth. Well, the reason is, of course, what are they trained on? They're trained on reams and reams of human uh, text and discussion and conversation. And humans are not super reliable. Even the scientific literature is full of uh, falsifications, errors, and misunderstandings. So the reason an experienced scientist is somewhat reliable at their job is that they have built an internal model that is fairly consistent and is quite often tested against reality. The problem with the text models is, of course, they don't really care and they don't currently have a method to test against this. So we need to add more things to make them really useful. So I would expect the current crop of text models are going to be just generating text where truth is not the most important part. The next generation that might be powerful is, of course, the ones that link to actual semantic information about uh, the world, where they actually check the mathematics if they make equations and make sure that it's a correct uh, calculation. Um, now, automated fact-checking would be really powerful. Imagine if you had an assistant that uh, constantly pointed out when you read something whether it actually is at variance with known facts or not. That could be very powerful, although a lot of people would absolutely not want to hear that because a lot of known facts they believe they know are not true. Indeed, it turns out that quite a lot of facts that even experts believe are not true. There is actually a disturbing uncertainty about many of the things we as a civilization believe. So it's by no means given that even these fact checkers are going to find the actual truth. Sometimes we might even act against it because, well, the official view on what the state of the world is might actually be incorrect. But done in the right way, I think this can be very, very powerful. The real problem is, of course, a lot of people are just going to use it naively or recognize that it's unreliable, but it's uh, the five to five o'clock and they want to get home and uh, they need to write 10 pages of text. Let's have a language more generated. Let's skim over it. And yeah, it looks good enough. And let's send it off. So we might very well end up in a world with a lot of unreliable verbiage, which we already live in, of course, but now we get much more of it. The funniest part is, of course, that you also get a lot of weird lies from these models because they are trained on what humans output. And if you ask a human, are you a robot? Most people will argue, no, I'm not a robot, and will give various arguments. That is, of course, part of the training data. There is a lot of examples online of that. So, of course, the language models tend to respond 
uh, unless you specifically train them not to respond like that by pretending to be human. This can sometimes be very amusing and sometimes downright creepy. We have a lot of these accidental lies because we have a system that's not a human trained on data generated by humans. And before long, we're going to have very different kinds of systems and entities that might actually be needed to train or to recognize what kind of entity they are, what claims they can and cannot make. This is complicated. And it's an interesting issue because it's not just programming, it's prompt engineering, and to some extent, even the sociology of understanding what is the system for. Imagine if these language models begin generating a lot of text because it's simply it's so easy for them to generate a lot of text at the request of, of a lot of humans. And then further imagine that this text is uploaded online and included in the training set of the next language model. Then you could, you could see how the ball could get rolling on a very weird um, hallucinatory model where the, the AI is learning by data that previous AI models have created. And so maybe, maybe a, a new field is hunting for authentic human text. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think this might actually be quite important. There is already some work by the people developing image generation models that they should have watermarks so they can recognize that they should not be part of the training data. There are some uh, national governments that have started to say that, yeah, you need to start adding uh, watermarks uh, to what is being generated. And part of that is, of course, not polluting the well. Because one scenario I envisioned is a spamocalypse. For example, today, if you want to get a recipe online, it's very likely that the top uh, recipe you get will have a preamble about five screen pages about a lovely holiday in Sicily and those lovely lemons before you get to the lemon meringue uh, recipe at the bottom. Why? Well, uh, of course, it's being monetized. There is uh, those impressions as you scroll past the ads at the side that actually make the, the site pay for itself. Now, writing that uh, verbiage about a holiday that nobody should really read that much, that could be done by a language model. But also, recipes can't, can't be copyrighted. They're not creative text. They're a list of ingredients. So actually, you can totally steal that from another site, but you will probably want to rewrite it a little bit so they don't uh, harass you too much. And I can totally foresee that, of course, an unscrupulous web designer would say, yeah, I'm going to use language mode to make recipes and preambles, and then I get the ad clicks, and then I'm making money. And then, of course, the next day, they are going to be doing this for something else than recipes. So the internet might get filled with this auto-generated context, pretending to be human, and also, of course, becoming part of training data which might mean that uh, now the language models are getting very confused about what ingredients actually are in apple pie. Because um, if you get random noise in there at some point, maybe carrots should be part of apple pie. Uh, the model doesn't know. It just includes it. So you could get an erosion of our shared epistemic system here if this is not handled well. So obviously you want something that checks the fact against reality. And you might also want a flag that this was probably auto-generated. But we might also want to think about the whole systems we have about recipes or scientific papers. These epistemic systems are kind of fragile, and the incentives for maintaining them well are not always well aligned. I don't know if you grade uh, undergraduate essays at Oxford, but uh, does this worry you that uh, that you will you will have uh, essays handed in that have been drafted by a language model or perhaps 
you know, handed in directly from a language model, do, do you think this is an actual threat or are they not advanced enough to, to fake an Oxford undergraduate yet? I think they're not good enough to fake an Oxford undergraduate, he said with some pride, but uh, <laughs> that is right now. And I fully expect that I'm going to see some of his essays before long. In fact, it would be a good thing if the philosophy faculty sprinkled in a few auto-generated essays just to check that the faculty is actually alert enough. The problem, I think, with auto-generated philosophy essays is that they're based on what is in the big corpus, what everybody knows, or at least what somebody has argued. So it's not going to break new ground. Normally, you don't expect undergraduate essays to do that. And that is the big problem. So once you get up on the master's level and PhD level, you might actually want to demand that this should be unique stuff that nobody has actually studied before. And that might be possible to even check for. But if you just have somebody explain how Epicurean ideas affected Machiavelli, yeah, I think the language models are going to do a decent job on this. So at that point, the obvious solution, we need to do a proper philosophy tutorial where I sit across from a student and ask him, so can you explain what Epicurus and Machiavelli ever had to do with each other? That might be the only way. And uh, it might very well be that the student says, yeah, but shouldn't I be allowed to use a language model to part partly make my arguments? After all, over in engineering, we're allowed to use pocket calculators. And I think there is some merit to it. It might be that the right kind of models might actually improve things. I would love to have an argument validity detector for my own text that reads the text and checks, does this make formal sense? And actually warn me when I'm kind of using too much hand-waving. That might be useful. That would be a tool just like a pocket calculator that we should want to have. But the earliest applications are, of course, going to be cheating. I have no doubt whatsoever that a lot of very bad scientific papers are being generated right at this moment and being sent to a lot of journals for review by people who really want to pad their CV. And we need to deal with that. We need to find better ways of actually checking that papers are useful, that they are true, that they have validity, that the experiments were actually done. Um, and that's going to be tough going. This reminds me or this mirrors a debate about, you know, you have a, say, a third grade student learning how to add or subtract, how to do basic math. And, and then this, the discussion is around, well, I will always have a calculator. And they're right. They will always have a calculator in their pocket. Uh, we will always, I'm guessing, have these language models available and they will only get better. So why should we artificially handicap our own thinking by not using them? And perhaps the answer there is that, well, we are training human ability. So we are, we are training critical thinking or ability to, to uh, do math uh, mentally and so on. And, and if, if, we, if we outsource our learning to these tools, well, then we will never gain the human ability. That could be one answer. Of course, the skeptic might say, yeah, but why do I want to have that ability? Uh, and my answer to the math student would be, it's actually very useful uh, to check, in, uh, to check uh, the sanity of your answer if you can do a quick uh, math in your head. Quite often, that is an extra safeguard that's very useful. To the philosophy student, you might say, yeah, but don't you actually love wisdom? Don't you actually want to figure out for yourself what is true? 
after all, you're, you're not going to become rich by just spouting off about Machiavelli and uh, Bentham. Uh, you actually need to have some proper uh, understanding. Because the language models are dealing with the surface level of a message. They're a very good model of what uh, a, a text would be like. But that text is supposedly reflecting some underlying understandings and concepts. Now, it seems like the language models are good enough that they almost imitate this deeper level well enough. And indeed, quite a lot of our languages we use every day is probably not smarter at all than the language model. We're just generating words that fit with this situation. And when I bump into a chair and I apologize to it. That's not because I'm thinking that the chair is an individual that I need uh, to apologize to. It's just a ref- reflex because, well, I bump into somebody and something, and then the easier response is to apologize. But getting that deeper level, that semantic information, those meanings, that is tricky. And we might actually want to have systems that tie more closely into that, especially when you want to have truthful language models. GPT-3, you could actually improve the truthfulness by asking it to give a truthful answer. Because you need to point out that we're interested in the part of language that deals with true statements rather than the big part of language that's arbitrary ones. But you might also want to hardwire in things that it actually checks the numbers it's giving against known data uh, in the world. That would be working on the deeper semantic level. Of course, we might also train on a lot of things and hope that maybe these models will grok the deeper semantics of the world, in which case we're actually approaching some better understanding of the real thing. But in many cases, there are many deeper levels. We might be having a conversation about one topic, but actually the real reason we're doing the conversation might be a political game in our organization or something very different. Actually understanding what's really going on can have quite a lot of levels, some of which are unsaid, some of which might even be unknown to the participants. They don't really know why we're engaging in some kind of social game, but there are reasons for that. We really want to have models that might be able to act on those levels. And the deeper they get, of course, the closer we get to real intelligence. But um, I think the language models are going to be a bit like the pocket calculator. They're very good for making text look good. I make a sketch of what my argument is, and then they fill out the details and make a nice rhetorical flourish. I'm proud to admit that I actually did this a few months ago with a paper. I couldn't come up with a good the end point of a paper. Uh, it was a simple one about plastic recycling, nothing fancy, but I couldn't come up with a good rhetorical flourish. So I had GPT-3 give me a few alternatives. I choose one and added that for the first iteration of the paper. It didn't contain any science. It was no research. It was just a nice send-off of, this is why we think this is a useful method and uh, it's going to help solve the waste problem, but expressed in a nice way. But you might want to have the deeper levels too. You want that fact checker. You want the math checker. You want to have maybe a system pointing out to you, by the way, this argument you're giving is very related to that book you read last week. Maybe there is a correlation here. Do you think that there's anything deep to this notion of understanding or will it kind of dissipate when we find out that the future language models can, can in fact simulate uh, what we would deem to be a deep understanding of a topic. Do you think? Do you think that? Do you think when you say uh, when you talk about whether a language model understands something, do you think we uh, mean the same thing by understanding? I don't think normal human understanding and language model understanding are the same thing. They work in slightly different ways. 
So when I say that I understand, let's say, some equations in astrophysics, that typically means that I can use them. I can use them to calculate things. I can explain what happens if you change the equations a bit. I might know something about uh, the range of uh, parameters where they're valid and so on. I might be able to tell you a funny story about how they were discovered. Now, this is not just making a simple prediction about the output. Language models are very good at making these predictions of output, but they generally don't have that causal connectedness. Generally, what current machine learning is weak at is understanding the the causal effect of the, uh, I do something, something happens. They're thinking all in terms of correlation. And this quite often works well. As they say, correlation does not imply causation, but as some wit added, but it certainly winks suggestively. If things are correlated with each other, they usually have something to do with each other. Quite a lot of stupid errors happen when you assume one causes the other. Quite often there is something hidden beneath or behind that that causes both to happen together. If you can discern that, then you have understood the situation and can do much more interesting things like changing that underlying factor in a useful way. This is something I think language models right now are unlikely to be good at. But again, they're general sequence prediction tools. It might be very risky to say they can never ever do this. It might very well turn out that with the right kind of training or the right kind of applications, they can actually start finding correlation structures. I think Judea Pearl and many others would say, no way, uh, we are not buying that, and give very, very clever arguments for why this cannot happen. And it wouldn't surprise me that it might generally not apply, but there might be domains where it actually works well enough that you can get cheap causation uh, understanding, and that's good enough for those domains. But it might also be that there are other very important domains where this absolutely doesn't work and you get totally misled. We need to learn those difference, the different domains and the boundaries between them. Do you think that language models' abilities to generate lists of, of actions, so for example, give me a list of the things I need to do, the actions I need to take to get a cup of coffee. Well, okay, get the cup, boil the water, put the coffee in. Is that a very rudimentary uh, understanding of causality? I don't think it's an understanding of causality. It's an understanding that humans explaining how to make coffee and tea make it in this order. Humans generally, I assume, have an understanding of causality when they're in the kitchen. Uh, And then they recount on how they did it. And then they don't explain how they concluded that you need to pour in the water after bringing the cup. It's just always there. So then you get a correlation structure that uh, the system learns. And now it looks like it has a causative understanding. And it's even general enough that uh, if you say, I don't have a teacup in my kitchen, can I use a glass? It will probably say, yeah, you can use a glass, bring the glass, uh, pour in the water. You do get something that is very similar, but it's a bit deceptive because it's actually not based on understanding the causative structure. Now, a lot of our language is full of assumptions about causality, so many that I think it locks down what the language model can say in such a way that it actually borrows our sense of causation. And I think this is generally what happens with the language models. There is so much human output that you can actually borrow all of this and use that reflected brilliance to look like you actually understand the things. 
you can steal human common sense and give it back to us uh, so that it looks like you have common sense in air. Exactly. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. That could uh, be this a way. This is, of course, how many of us also look uh, very intelligent. Actually, we just read <laughs> a lot of stuff and listen to podcasts. But actually, uh, in a conversation, we bring up some nice bon mot and uh, some cool fact. And it sounds like we are very, very wise. But actually, yeah, it's the rest of mankind channeled through us. I think that's a very common experience. We should talk, so you've hinted at this or talked about it, but we should we should think about how these models will evolve, how they'll get more grounded, how they'll gain semantic understanding, perhaps how they will become multimodal. So will they incorporate images or um, video and so on? Uh, could what, what future directions could these models go in? So the real issue is not so much uh, what uh, you want to add, but just how much can you add and do you have enough compute for it? So making a multimodal language model seems totally obvious. Just uh, add a camera and a microphone, and uh, now you get a data stream, which in many ways is similar to just getting the text data stream. There are some issues about noise, about training, but basically we're talking about patterns of data and finding an architecture that's good at handling it. Probably you might say, yeah, I'm going to put in some model like OpenAI's Whisper uh, to actually parse the language because we already worked rather hard on that. So instead of um, just having unfiltered sound, uh, my multimodal image is going to look through the camera and hear what people are saying. Although having the raw sound stream might also be useful because the chirping of birds and the, uh, the bowing of dogs actually is also part of that world. And then presumably it would do good sequence prediction and be able to predict in a scene what's supposed to happen next. But the problem here is uh, more like, okay, can you get enough training data? So right now we have been using the idea that we can get enormous amount of training data, get it suitably labeled, and then produce a nice output. The problem is, of course, getting cheap labeled training data is tricky. I think we run out of that thing. People used to say that data is the new oil. And right now, I think we're approaching a kind of weird oil crisis. Having a really good curated repository of good training data is not trivial to get your hands on. Would this data have to be human labeled or could we have AI labeled training data for AI with some quality control mixed in? Could, could we could we set up this training set so that it wouldn't pollute the model and degrade performance, but would instead perhaps expand performance, improve performance? I would bet that you could do interesting things here because you could start by having a model trying to label the data, a human responding, and the expensive and rare human interventions can then train an internal critic uh, that helps retrain the actual labeling model. Um, this is something that has been discussed a fair bit in the AI safety and the AI alignment world, because there, ideally, you would want robots and the AI systems to always do what humans want them to do or make sense. But humans are so slow and it's so expensive to ask humans for advice. So instead, what you do is you try to train on a human, giving a, a bit of scarce advice. So you get an internal model pretending to be that human, giving advice of the same style, and then try to see, can this train well? And it seems to work uh, surprisingly well. I don't know whether this could work in these applications, but it's certainly worth trying. And I would be very surprised to hear that nobody is doing it right now. 
how have your opinions about AI safety changed because of uh, how AI AIs have actually turned out? So uh, perhaps in the 90s, we didn't have that many examples of actual AIs. Um, and perhaps now we do. I don't know if, the, if that's an actual, uh, of, if that's an, an accurate picture, but that's, that's kind of my summary of, of the history here. Now we have some examples of simple AIs uh, have have your understand uh, how how have your uh, opinions changed about how we can make these models safe? So back in the nineties, very few, if any, people were really thinking about AI safety. It's well worth noticing that people in the nineteen fifties were claiming that oh, within a generation we're going to get human level AI, and we're not concerned about safety at all. There's this very fa- famous research proposal. Where they this is in I think 1956 and they propose that with they give a, a small group of researchers a summer and they will make significant progress in artificial intelligence research. That's that's the start of the field where with a very overconfident prediction. But go ahead. Oh yeah, uh, the Dartmouth conference that this was about uh, was also accurate. They did actually do a surprising amount of useful stuff over summer because there was nothing before. When there is nothing, any improvement is infinite uh, improvement. But they were very optimistic about getting powerful AI. And even some people like Alan Turing and IJ Good were aware that, well, once you get self-improving AI, that's going to be very dramatic. But none of them really seriously talked about the safety issues. And part of it might be that they still had that distrust because when you see how badly your actual system works, well, you have a hard time believing that it could be powerful enough to matter. And it's a lot of cheap talk. In the 90s, I was part of a transhumanist movement. We were all very bullish about the imminent technological singularity. And this is going to be great. And we had members of the mailing list arguing that we need to speed up the singularity. So we should really be working hard to make an artificial intelligence system that could act as a seed AGI to improve itself. And it's actually from those conversations we uh, got a lot of early safety thinking because some of the people involved started realizing, wait a minute, if we're taking this absolutely seriously and believe that we could get this exponential growth of something becoming smarter and smarter, that means that we are essentially creating a god and its values are going to be set by whatever we happen to program. And at this point, any programmer realizes, oh, I mess up all the time. And oh, if I mess up programming something godlike, that's scary. That led to a conversation about how do you actually make something that is safe? And from some of these discussions, you actually end up in the earliest part of the AI safety debate. But it's worth noting this was not part of the mainstream. This was among the weirdo futurists. Meanwhile, the AI researchers in the 90s, they were mostly interested in making sure that the industrial robots don't squish people. That had been a concern since the 1970s, and it's a valid, relevant concern, but AI being used for any super important jobs in the world, they knew the field well enough to think that this is not uh, very likely to be a problem right now. We can wait. And I was probably very much in that world, even though I was one of those optimistic futurists, AI seemed fairly far away. I was much more optimistic about many other technologies. And again, it turns out that futurists are very bad at predicting which technology arrive early. So while life extension is going on nicely, but a bit too slowly for my taste, uh, nanotechnology got misdirected by the sociology of research funding. 
while biotechnology is charging on, but so unpredictable, we can't tell anything. New space is way ahead of what we would have expected, while AI for a long time didn't do anything, and then suddenly just jumped and became much more of an urgent issue. And that made me concerned about AI safety. I've always been much more optimistic than many of my friends in this field, uh, perhaps just because of personality rather than facts and good reasoning. But it seems to me that, yeah, we're getting systems that can amplify human performance tremendously. That's already enough to be a cause of serious concern. It also looks like we are bad at predicting when their performance can increase and even what they're doing once they have a higher performance. These are very good reasons to work very hard on uh, designing them better, finding better ways of validating and testing them and understanding the consequences for society. The problem right now seems to be that the field is a bit divided between AI ethicists that are looking at the standard ethical issues that you get from these systems and are rightly concerned about the bias in algorithms and how power accumulates. But they tend to totally dismiss concerns about the power of AI systems themselves and the transformative power. While the people working on the transformative AI side, uh, they are to some extent dismissing the everyday ethical issues because they seem to be so small compared to the really explosive power of a powerful system. So unfortunately, we have ended up with two communities that don't talk to each other enough and they don't get along enough uh, to actually be helpful. Because it's pretty obvious that if you can make an AI system that can understand human social mores well enough not to be racist, then that is also a helpful thing for figuring out a system that can understand human social mores enough to be somewhat value aligned with humans. And that might not be an issue of just trying to change the training data. It might require some rather deep architectural discussions. It might also be that we need to think a lot about governance and long-term strategy especially if AI is going to become very transformative. I think many of the current discussions about AI ethics are going to be blown out of the water simply because just too much happens. As we saw with AI art in 2022, uh, that shock really shocked an entire community and led to a big debate. And we're going to see this probably every year for the next 10, 20 years, where different groups that never expected in their whole life that AI would matter to them, suddenly it erupts there and it becomes paramount. There is this core technical issue in AI safety of aligning an AI model to a set of values, any set of values, where the goal is just for any set of values, can we make it so that the AI pursues these values? For example, uh, we could call it the values of humanity as opposed to some uh, random values. But there's also the the philosophical side of deciding which values we should have the the AI pursue. And you quickly get into uh, difficult discussions. If we're thinking about uh, now, say we have a a, a language model that we have uh, trained and um, improved over time so that it does not output uh, racist content. Perhaps the the same techniques could be used to have a language model that, that does not uh, criticize uh, various uh, go- governments, for example. And then you, you, start, you, you start to see how there could be worries about uh, authoritarian governments using this to uh, read the internet and uh, pick out. Uh... What I'm saying is that we have, conflicting, um, mo- we have conflicting goals here, and some of them will, will collide with each other. And we, 
And there's there are super difficult questions about which values to to give to these AI. Yeah, uh, but we don't know what the true values we ought to have are, if any. It's an ongoing debate. Uh, I think we made some progress over the last 2,500 years, but <laughs> yeah, it's a complicated issue. Uh, similarly, what kind of rules do you want built into the AIs? That is also a really important thing. It's a matter both of power and utility. Uh, for example, many of the image generating systems don't make naughty pictures. And you can kind of understand that OpenAI don't want to uh, generate that because we're a company. They don't want to mess around with the issues of political propaganda and pornography. So they carefully trained DALI to not to do that, which had other interesting side effects. Because if you remove naughty pictures from the training data, that means that you actually remove a large number of predominantly female people, which means that you get a gender bias, which they corrected for. So in this case, we have a bit of an understanding of a particular bias. But it probably also had other effects that we don't even notice because we don't even understand what's going on there. And you can imagine, of course, making AI systems that don't uh, help you do dangerous things. But what is dangerous? And this goes back to the more deep philosophical debate about, for example, freedom of expression. Many outrageous ideas have turned out to be true. So it's actually a good thing to be able to express outrageous ideas. And it might very well be a good thing to have AI art systems that can make uh, both uh, sexual and political pictures. Indeed, if you go to a fancy art gallery or art museum, typically uh, the artworks that uh, the curators and the reviewers talk the most about are the ones that probably the AI program would not allow to be made. So it might very well be that we want diversity here. And that actually goes back to the interesting value alignment problem. Because it seems like one very valuable approach to this is to recognize that we are uncertain about this and the AI ought to be uncertain about it too. We might say, we want you to make people happy. And then hopefully the AI system recognizes that the humans don't quite know what they mean by happy and uh, we. And uh, make us also is a bit uncertain. And actually, they might not like my proposal because their literature is full of dystopias that pretend to be utopias and stories about AI programs doing bad things and, uh, when they're given good commands. I should be careful here. So you actually want to learn many of these things about un an axiological uncertainty. What we are uncertain about the value is normative uncertainty. We're even uncertain about what morality to do, uncertainty about the world, our place in it, etc. What does this uncertainty do? Well, it softens things. If you're absolutely certain as an AI program what you should do, you will just do it. And that seems to be very dangerous. AI programs that are good at handling uncertainty are probably not going to go haywire quite as strongly. Now, this still leaves us with another big AI safety problem. That's AI programs doing what humans tell them to do, but the humans happen to be malicious or misguided or stupid. And there is a lot of those people out there. And if their power gets amplified, we're going to see a lot of trouble. But at least we have some ideas about the value alignment problem and uncertainty, but they go well together. And one of the most interesting things about language models is that the text we see, that is just the thing that is being generated. It's the most likely words following each other a bit randomly. But there are many alternative ways the text could have gone. 
We might want to have tools to actually see the alternative versions of a text and be able to backtrack and say, actually, let's follow this other branch of thinking or this other branch of style. I think we actually can develop better tools for interacting with these systems. So it's not just a question about training data uh, or having bigger computers, but also getting better training data and better tools for interactively working with them. Some of the best images I've seen generated by machine learning AI art are done by having them make a few pictures. And then a human paints over a section and says, over here, I want a house. Or this part of the uniform should be a bit more science fictional. And that face, uh, make it sterner. And then you iterate. You have an interactive work. But this is where I think ChatGPT is such an interesting tool. Because it's not just generating a text one time. You're actually having a conversation. You nudge it in different directions. It's still by no means perfect. It's very easy to get it into totally inconsistent states. But that interaction is also a good way of conveying, no, this uh, direction is the wrong path. We might want to go down another path. I agree that having AIs be uncertain about values is an, is an interesting research direction, but I worry that it's simply easier to, to make an AI that has a more hard-coded or uh, precisely specified utility function. It might be easy, but it's also likely to fail in annoying ways. So imagine that you're running your authoritarian government and you're programming your AI to follow the, your official ideology. Do you now get an AI that you are aligned with? Probably not, because most authoritarian rulers actually don't behave according to their own ideology. And this comes back again and again to bite us. Uh, indeed, NSA probably felt that Snowden was a very trustworthy individual because he was going on about the Constitution all the time. And we are so aligned with the Constitution and its values, which turned out that Snowden disagreed with. So similarly, that AI with the black and white utility function might very well say, my authoritarian government is not obeying its uh, sinister ideology well enough. I need to make it do that, which might be a bad news for the leadership of that government. So a well-defined utility function quite often backfires in interesting ways. I, I imagine that the surviving authoritarian governments would also say, yeah, we want a bit more uncertainty. It should recognize that there's some nuances and subtleties in our sinister agenda. Uh, so it shouldn't just be treating it black and white. That's one direction to go. True, true. Anders, uh, thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. On the next episode, I talk with Anders about his upcoming book, Grand Futures, which is about what humanity could do at the very limits of physics.